there's kind of a little truth of the gospel I think that we don't get sometimes. And that's that that's acknowledging our sin before him allows us to actually come close. Because unconfessed sin keeps us at a distance. It makes us feel like we, we can't come close. But Jesus says he wants us close. He wants us to draw near. He wants to, he wants to be in with us. And when we do confess our sin, when we do come close and we begin to experience that forgiveness and that assurance that God still loves us no matter what we did this past week. I mean, we know that all of our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. That's, that's transformation. I mean, that's why we set aside time every week to do communion. You see a little cup, right? Representing blood. You see a little wafer representing a body and you have kind of a visual demonstration. Hey, somebody... Somebody made the ultimate sacrifice for me. And see, once we've experienced that, should we experience that? We're going to be launched out of this place on mission, right? To live out this love of God that He has for us through Jesus. So that our neighbors get to see us in action. They get to hear from us. They get to see it played out in our lives with the goal that we should have to want to make sure that they have an opportunity to respond to the same God we did by faith. And then we come in here a week later and we do it all again. It's a constant rehearsal. Kind of like an actress. Right? The night before the big performance, she'll get her script and she'll sit and she'll read through it. Even though she's done that thousands of times. Constantly rehearsing. Because on stage, she's going to fail. She's, she's going to be halting if she's thinking at any point in, in, the, in, the, in the play or the movie, hey, is it my turn to speak now? Is, is it my turn to say something? Is it now the time I say that line? Because if that's where she is, there's going to be no freedom, right? But if she has rehearsed it a thousand times, over and over, when she performs it, there's a beauty. There's a free, there's even a spontaneity that she will contribute to it. She might even put in humor that the script doesn't call for in the original, the original cast. There's a freedom, there's a light-footedness to that performance. I, I think in the same way, if we're not rehearsing and remembering the truth of God's love for us, when we face discouragement on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, or temptation, or despair, or doubt, we're going to be on our heels. We're going to be fearful. How, how, how am I supposed to respond to this thing going on? Where, where's my cue card? You'll be frozen. But if you have rehearsed God's never ending love for you, week in, week out, a thousand times, you get it into the muscle memory of your heart. Then when you face discouragement, then when you face temptation, then when you face uh, despair or doubts, you're going to know what songs to say. You're going to know what thoughts to think. You're going to know what prayers to pray. You're going to know what scriptures to re re rehearse. Why? Because it's just become part of you. You don't even have to think about it. It's just, it just comes out. So that's kind of what we want Sundays to be here. We don't want to just gather for an hour and feel really good about ourselves because we managed to get out of bed and get here. We don't just be inspired for an hour in the week. We want, we want to build 30 deep Christians. We're going to have joy, not only on Sunday morning, but also during the week and for a really long time. Now, repetitions and habits 
don't don't save us or don't make us joyful, right? That, that can be a that can be a problem if it becomes an end to itself, some kind of tricky thing that you do and you make it happen. But but if we gather, and if we become vulnerable to hearing this word, if we seek him out and we hear the gospel again, and we need to hear about Jesus again and again and again, don't we? It can, I think, transform us. And we can be like scripture describes which we're Christians, like like cedars with roots that go way deep. Because every week we've been driving ourselves deeper and to go deeper. I think that's part of the formula for joy. So this is a corporate worship experience. So just a thought. We're about maybe come a little early. What we experience on Sunday is really dependent on others. My worship on any given Sunday is affected by each of you. I need you, you need each other. We need one another. So show up, hop on early, get ready. Get ready to hear from God. Get ready to praise God. Get ready to worship Him. Get ready to thank Him. So that's the first part. The second part of the formula for joy that I see in this song has to do with kind of a personal and, and a regular recognition that God is actually on your side. So that phrase a few times in that passage. The psalmist explains that this is one of the most important elements for joy, to confirm that God is actually involved with you in such a way that you can talk like maybe verse 6. The Lord's on my side. The Lord's on my side. I, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Almost sounds cocky, doesn't it? But there are things that hinder us being that confident. And it's when we seek comforts and helps in things that aren't God, right? In false comforts and help. Channel 7 ABC tells us that it's on our side. But i got a, I got a question for you. When does Channel 7 ABC ever mail you out? Really? Really? Good. And this is what verses 8 and 9 are talking about. Psalm says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. This is, this is talking about the way that we just kind of almost instinctively, impulsively seek out safety and, and help in the wrong avenues. Better to seek refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's like, it's like making every decision and living life with, with God at the center of your imagination on how this thing's going to work out. And I, I know this when, when you know, we had kids in the house and I was making decisions on stuff. I'm making decisions with my wife in mind, with the kids in mind, what's going to be best for them, what's going to bring the most joy, most comfort, what's going to protect us, what's going to discourage us, what's going to set us up for the future, what's going to bring us together, what's going to be most exciting, right? I'm not fearful of them, but I'm considering them in the formula. Now, I think that has to be true, but maybe even more intimately and infinitely true in our dealings with God. He's got to be at the center of our thinking and our imagination as we make decisions. But if you're trusting in man, all those decisions that you're making are going to be more about things like this. Well, what are they going to think about if I do this or make this move or take this step? Am I going to be left out? Am I going to be ostracized? Are they going to like me? Are they going to approve of me? And trusting in or fearing what man's going to think or how man's going to respond, I think turns us into flimsy souls. Because we're going to constantly be tossed around, tossed around by people's, people's opinions. 
or our thoughts about what people's opinions are going to be. I don't think that's a very joyful life. Because your joy is going to be constantly dependent on the ever-changing whims and opinions of everybody else. Better take refuge in God than to trust in princes, it also says. Here's another temptation that we have to trust in the resources of, of, of power, right? The accomplishment and riches of those in power. And we're, we are so easily pulled by this. We trust in so much that's not God. I mean, if we, could, if, if we could just get this particular political party into power, then everything's going to be better. All our dreams will come true. If we could just get this particular politician into office or out of it, then the, then the kingdom's going to come for sure. Or I don't really care how evil this politician is. I just don't want that politician there over there to win because I think he's more evil. So I'm going to trust in this other politician. God says, look, set princes aside. I'm a better refuge. Don't trust in princes to rescue you, even from other princes. Hey, we're a church in North Virginia, right? So resources are always tight because things are expensive around here, right? And this, we have this temptation, even at the owner board. We, I, we've been in meetings where we sat around and, and, and we, we're, we're tempted to think about money in a weird way. We're, we're always tempted to wonder, wouldn't it be awesome if we just had like one or two millionaires who would just join our church and then tie? That would be like the answer to all of our, all of our worries, right? Or maybe even a billionaire, that'd be really better. And the psalmist says, man, don't. Don't be trusting in princes. God's a better refuge. God showed his hand on that, didn't he? Maybe the sale of the property over in McLean. We just took over, and we ended up with a million dollars more than we should have had. <laughs> then in verse 14 and 15, we got some practical guidelines, I think, for how to kind of get that joy awakened in your life. 14 says this. The Lord is my strength and my song. And then this key phrase. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does value them. He is not talking about that moment when he first believed and God became his Savior. He's talking about a point in time where something happened and God didn't just become a Savior at some point in time in the past but became his Savior every day. God has become his Savior. Because if you're a Christian, you know this. There was a point in your life when you believed by faith that Jesus Christ was God and became your Savior. But we also know this, if you are honest. Most of us as new Christians, we still acted pretty much every day as if something else really was our refuge. As if something else really was our Savior. Yeah, we think that our money was our Savior. Or that work was our refuge. Or that our relationships were our refuge. Or that our status and reputation was our refuge. All those things were our practical day-in, day-out saviors, right? If I could just get that, then I'd be, everything would be great. If I could just get that promotion, everything would be awesome. Well, I think the psalmist was there. He experienced that too, just like we do. But, but something along the path happened. God has now become his salvation, his, his help, his refuge on a day-to-day -day basis. And when that happens, you and I become different people. We become different people. We begin to live differently with our money. We begin to live differently with our time. We begin to live with a different aspect, an opinion about our work. 
We live differently with our relationships. Everything radically changes. Maybe you don't know this, but, but, but verse 14 is actually a quote from Exodus chapter 20, written 500 years earlier. Israel, miraculously saved by God out of slavery in Egypt, miraculously crossing the Red Sea while their pursuers, the army of Egypt, drowns in the same sea. And then they get to the other side, they look back and see, whoa, we're alive. This is awesome. And they break out in song. And verse 14 was one part of that song. It was true. God was, at that point in their history, their salvation. But almost all the people in Israel proved in pretty short order even though they intellectually knew that God was their Savior, they were willing to live with Him as their Savior day by day. They were constantly, every little thing that happened, constantly looking back at how great things were in Egypt. Yeah, they were slaves of Egypt. How great was that? Hey, the food was there. It was better than the food we have here. We didn't, we, we were, we're going to die out here. We should, we should go back there. And then God brought them all the way right to, right to the edge of the Jordan River. and said, that land over there, that's the promised land. That's your land. All you got to do is cross over the river and take it. So they sent some spies over there to check it out. Spies came back. Almost all of them said, man, the people there are really big. They're fortified. They got stuff. We're, we're a bunch of slaves. We're not an army. So we're, we're afraid to go. Two of the guys came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, eh, yeah, they're big, but you know, God's on our side. God's going to be with us. So let's, let's go do it. And because they took a boat, the downside of democracy. Um, Ten people said no, ten people said yes, no's win, and they stay there. God says, okay, great. Great. You don't trust me to be your savior in this endeavor. So here's what we're going to do. All you people who are not believers, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And you're going to die in the desert. You're never going to see it. And if you read the book of Hebrews, what that what the Hebrews says about those people that died in the wilderness, they were unbelievers. So, so faith's got to be lived up day to day. If you're, if you're so-called faith in Christ, on the inside, on that day you got saved, doesn't result in a faith that's played out on the outside, day by day, the Bible just calls it unbelief. We're going to be going through the book of James starting later this year, which is all about that whole concept. So the question is, how about us? How about you? How about me? When, when the trials come, when the heat gets turned up, on you and me, where, where do we go? Where, where do you turn? Is, is the Lord your refuge then? Or, or, or is it any number of other things? You know, one of the most impressive prayers in Scripture uh, is this really weird, uh, kind of obscure story in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a story involving Elijah, kind of a peculiar, kind of, kind of quirky uh, prophet. He's become very critical of the king of Syria. And he keeps just blasting this guy. And the king finally says, I've, I've had enough. So he sends out people and figures out, where is Elijah? They come back finally after they're having a hard time finding him. He says, okay, he's in this place right here. So the king sends an army, an army, chariots, horsemen, everything, right? And they surround the place where, where uh, Elijah is. And so the next morning, Elisha's assistant gets up and he goes outside. Uh, he looks around and he sees army totally surrounding him. 
zips back inside, says, okay, here's what's going on outside, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, don't, don't worry, don't fret your little self about this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you can imagine the servant, right? He's looking around the house. Okay, there's this old geezer, and that's it. That's, that's all there is. And they've got an army out there. He's incredulous. So Elijah takes him outside, and Elisha prays. It's an interesting prayer. He doesn't pray, Oh Lord, what am I going to do? Would you please save us? Help us, please. No, he prays for the servant. God, would you open his eyes so that he might see that you are alright? And God opens this guy's eyes and he sees a multitude of chariots of fire completely surrounding them, protecting them. Listen, Christian maturity is more and more having the instinct to see by faith that those who are with us are greater than those who are arrayed against us. That's why Paul can say, God's for me. God's for us. Who can be against us? You're going to kill me? Great. Guess where I'm going? New body, into heaven. Ah, awesomeness for eternity. Fine. There's nothing ultimate that you can do to me, as Paul says. There's sort of cockiness in the face of danger, cockiness in the face of stress and worry. You just open your eyes, you'll see that all the ways that God has surrounded you up to now, good to rehearse that. Good to remember what God did for us in the sale of the property. Good to remember what God has done for us in, in healing us from some affliction. God, it's good to, be, good to rehearse that. And then you pray that your eyes will be open on a day-to-day -day basis to see Him tomorrow, on the next day, the next day, the next day. And then I think if you do that, joy is going to start creeping in. Here's the third thing I want to draw out of this song. Third way to experience joy is to build, build yourself around the cornerstone, right? Psalm 18, 22 says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, what's a cornerstone? Back in verse 19, David begins his whole imagery of the temple. He talks about the gates of righteousness, the gates of the Lord, the righteousness will enter in. It's all, it's all temple talk. David is describing the experience of coming into the presence of God in the temple. And, and the cornerstone of that was this, was this stone, the first stone that was laid down, and the first stone laid down sort of sets the alignment of everything else that is built upon it. And what David is showing here is that the real cornerstone that God laid down for God's people has been overlooked and rejected. Yeah, rejected by man, but not rejected by God because God is exalted. Now, the metaphor of this whole cornerstone thing kind of works for David because David was also a guy who was rejected. Nobody thought much of him, even his dad. And when Samuel comes to find the new king to replace Saul, all the brothers come in, and David's not among them. He's out with the sheep, right? And, and the guy that God chose was not one of those brothers. And so they have to kind of, he was kind of that before. You got any more, got any more boys? Got any more sons here? Well, yeah, he's nothing. He's David. He's a squirt. He's out with the sheep. He's insignificant. Bring him in anyway, so they wait for him and he's the guy. So David's not thought of by a lot of people. Poor shepherd boy, all kinds of trouble, but people rejecting him all through his life. But God saw fit to go ahead and exalt him to be the king, be the king, king, right? But David gets it, that he's not the cornerstone. Because the cornerstone of the temple was a central, an essential element uh, that one would have to experience to, to sort of have, have a relationship with God. Cornerstone sets the temple a, a place, right? 
Every battle lack, right? But David gets it that it's important, but that he's not, he's not the guy. So there's going to be somebody coming down the line who's going to be greater than David who can actually reconnect, connect God and man. And in Matthew chapter 21, hundreds of years later, Jesus reveals who this cornerstone is. Jesus has just cleared the temple. He's driven out all the people who were ripping people off, right? Robbing people. And then he sets about healing people. And while he's doing that, the children are all celebrating. Oh, say, ah, to the, to the son of David. Right? The, the people are just super exuberant, right? The next day, Jesus goes back to the temple. And he's teaching. And then the religious leaders show up. And they demand to know who has given Jesus this authority to do all this stuff. So Jesus, never answers the question quite correctly, starts telling stories. So he tells this parable, a story of a guy, a master, who leases some land to tenants. And the tenants are supposed to keep the land and give a healthy chunk of the product back to the, the master. Well, they decide they, they really like this land and they like what it's producing. They don't want to get it back. And so they kill the servants that the master sends. So the servant sends some more people and they kill them too. Finally, the master says, well, okay, I'm going to send my son because they're not going to touch him. But they go, oh, this is the son. If we kill him, then all this inheritance is going to be ours. Jesus' explanation is that he is like that son who was rejected. But unfortunately for those tenants, and unfortunately, Jesus says, for all you guys who have rejected me, I'm actually the chief cornerstone. And he quotes Psalm 118. And on that cornerstone, you're going to be crushed. And I am the essential thing, Jesus says, for mankind to be connected to God. And maybe you say, well, oh, okay, I'm a Christian. Of course I think Jesus is essential. Easy to say, isn't it? But don't we overlook him? Don't we underestimate him? Isn't it true that we often assume that Jesus really won't quite satisfy us? Sure. I mean, we know that's true because we typically give in to other temptations. Grab on to things that shallow things, satisfy us for a moment. And what we're saying when we do that is, Jesus, I, I really believe I really believe that those things are going to satisfy me more than you will. We think this is going to provide more joy than you can provide, Jesus. We underestimate His power. We underestimate His ability to satisfy what we really, at our heart's level, desire. So we leave so much of Jesus unexperienced. So much of Him unenjoyed. So much of Him unseen. So much of Him unheard. And we find ourselves unhealed, feeling unloved, unfulfilled, and lacking in joy. We ignore it. And he calls to us, David, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your souls. Forget that, dude. I'm much too busy for rest. I don't have time. He says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. We go, this is not better. I can take care of this. I can do this myself. I can, I'm self-sufficient. Jesus says, be still and know that I'm God. Forget that. Forget that, dude. I don't get anything done when I'm being still. Being with Jesus is not one of the seven effective habits of the successful person. Isn't it, isn't it true? You tell me. Every time you sit down and try to pray, or try to be quiet, or try to be still, or try to read His Word, or try to meditate on Scripture, 
Doesn't your email and your to-do list beckon you? Come with me. All you who are anxious want to get stuff done. Don't you want to get stuff done? And everything in our hearts say, yeah, I want to get stuff done. So we reject Jesus as useless. But this psalm says he's essential. He's the cornerstone. He makes everything else built upon him function the way it's supposed to function. Don't you like my cornerstone? Not on your to-do list. And you know what Jesus is claiming, right? He's claiming, he's claiming this. He's not just our spiritual life coach. He's not someone that just wants to enhance our, our spiritual experience once in a while. He's claiming to be the king. You're a king if you're a Christian. He's not something just lump in with everything else in our lives. He's the king. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock we build our lives upon. You start with him. He's to be front and center before anything else. You start with him and build everything else on him. You build your time around him. You build your relationships around him. You build your dreams around him. You build your money, how you spend it, around him. You build your future, what you want in your future, around him. He's not your guru. He's to be the king of your life. And his promise is that if we experience it that way, if he's the cornerstone, if he's the king, you will have the most joy possible in your life. Because your trajectory and all of your alignments are built off of Christ. This is where you will live life to the full. This is where you will have joy most possible. It's what Jesus said he came to bring you as your king, as your savior, as the cornerstone. I got a picture on the screen. You might know what that is. Afraid to say, aren't you? You all know. This picture that she tweeted, uh, a picture she has in her apartment in New York. And you probably wonder where I'm going with this. If you were to look very closely at this picture, what you would see is that it is a picture made up of thousands of pictures of Paris Hilton. I don't want to give her a hard time, because what's she doing? She's holding up a mirror to us. We probably have pictures like this of ourselves, but you know, if you look closely enough at us, what you'll probably find in you and me is just a whole lot more of you and me. If you look closely enough at me, is it just more me down there? Deeper in, is it all just about me? Do, do I live and breathe for me? But if Jesus is the cornerstone of my life, I can't do that anymore. And the problem is I need to make some radical changes in my life. I mean, if my life is made up of a lot of me's, there's got to be some dying to me to be able to live for Christ. What does the Bible say? Exalt yourself and you'll be humble. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. If your life is a picture of yourself, consisting of thousands of pictures of yourself, then to have the joy that God is talking about here, you will have probably start dying a thousand little deaths. But in that, you will find joy. And don't underestimate that. Don't overlook it. Pray yourself into it. Leave yourself into it. 
So, the formula for joy. Let our corporate worship here inspire you to rekindle the belief, the truth that God really does love you, to walk out of you. Every Sunday determined to have God as your hope and refuge every single day until you gather again and get recharged. And three, make Jesus the cornerstone of every aspect of your life. He is essential for joy. Let's pray.